Oh, hi. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. This is where Louisa and Beverly bring you the experts, the stories, and the research impacting the cybersecurity profession today. Hi, I'm Louisa Vogel and Zhang. Hi, I'm Beverly Roche. Together, we are your co-hosts for the Cybersecurity Cafe. It's our first episode, our very first podcast. So exciting that we've finally landed here, Louisa. I know, I know. It's been a long time coming and lots of months in the planning. But yeah, it's great to finally get our first show out there. It is. And I reckon all the best conversations happen over coffee. Hence is why we landed on the Cybersecurity Cafe. Yeah, and we're going to have this conversation a couple of times a month and we're going to bring you a mix of familiar voices in the cybersecurity industry, but also new voices as well. It's something that Beverly and I are really passionate about. And we also wanted to make sure that the show was independent. So we are in complete control of the content, which we're really excited about as well. And it's just such an honour to have you listening to us. And we promise that this will be your show. So please let us know what you like and what you don't like. Yeah, and you can get in touch with us via Twitter. So our Twitter handle is at Cafe. And we'll also be posting the show notes and any links to anything we discuss on our website, which is cybersecuritycafe.com.au. Right, before we get to our very first guest, we thought it would be a good idea just to help you get to know us a little better. And we're not going to be walking you through our bios or anything like that. We just wanted to give you a bit of color behind our CVs uh, through a couple of quick fire question rounds. So Beverly, you're up first. Best moment in cyber so far? Working for the e-safety commissioner, looking at the societal issues, just so challenging and so exciting. And what do you love about cybersecurity? The challenges, the learning, the problem solving, the people. I love it. Any unfulfilled ambitions? The podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It took a little while to get this beast off the ground. (laughs) I think the other thing is one day I'd like to do a TED Talk style presentation. So I've been learning how to story tell. And Louisa, what about your best moment in cyber so far? Oh, there's just been so many, but the standout for me was probably when I realized that the profession I was in allowed me to fulfill my ambition of moving to Australia. It'd been a dream for several decades. Mm -hmm. So it was that moment when I got my visa through and it meant that I was heading to Australia. So excited to have you. (laughs) (laughs) It's fantastic. Tell me, who do you admire the most? So we have so many oh, incredible people in cybersecurity. It's really hard to name, you know, one or two people. Uh, but I would probably say, because this is a really recent experience, but last week I was up with the ID care team. And for those of you who don't know ID care, they're a support service for uh, victims of cybercrime or identity theft and or, or scams. And they just do an incredible job, not only of counselling people, through those incidents, but also of explaining cybersecurity to the layperson. I've, you know, never heard anything like it. So I hope I have got a very um, new found admiration for the work that they do. And can't we learn so much about how to translate cyber for everyone from yeah. those people? Yeah, I can't definitely. wait to interview you about that. That'll be fantastic. 
What do you love about cyber? Oh, like you, I love the people. I love I love that it's always changing. Um, but I think I really what I love is that shared passion that we seem to have as an industry, which is about protecting people, protecting information, doing the right thing, and that's you know often what gets us out of bed in the morning. So yeah. Last one, unfulfilled <laughs> ambitions. So for me, similar to you, Beverly, um, I would love to do uh, a a talk at a conference. Actually, I've had a a long struggle with uh, fear of public speaking, so I've never actually spoken at a conference, and I'd love to do that one day. So I'll put that on the bucket list. But in the meantime, I'm really excited that we are getting to do this podcast. Just remind me, how did we meet? <laughs> Feels like it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, so that was almost seven years ago now, Beverly, and you were the branch chair at the Australian Information Security Association in Victoria, here in Australia, and I just moved to the other side of the world. I didn't know anybody, and you were there fantastic to see a female role model for me and then you were talking about something that I'd never really heard discussed before and it was about digital footprints and this was sort of seven years ago and um, I sort of was blown away by your presentation and afterwards we got talking you made me feel welcome and the rest is history. I was just looking for someone to handball the whole thing <laughs> to I think. <laughs> Oh, it was just such a great time. But that's enough about us. Let's get to our incredible first guest. Welcome to our very first Cybersecurity Cafe podcast, Blair Adamson. Just wanted to say a big thank you for being our first guest. Beverly and I are super excited to hear from you today for a couple of key reasons. And that's firstly, because you really represent that human side of cybersecurity, which we're both very passionate about, but also because you're a voice that we feel more people need to hear from. Researching your bio before this show, Blair, I know that you've done various senior management and advisory roles in Department of Defence, the Australian Signals Directorate, also the SANS Institute. But how did you land in cybersecurity. Well, first, I wanted to say thank you for the opportunity, and I'm uh, looking forward to the discussion. I actually took so you mentioned Department of Defence, but I, my actual way that I landed in cybersecurity was quite non-traditional. And then I spent the first ten years of my career as a brand manager in a fashion agency, and that was in Perth. Um, so that was probably the first half of my career. And then I took a very predictable step of moving to Canberra and joining the Department of Defence in a graduate program. I have a political science degree, so that was obviously my interest. Um, I didn't really know too much about cyber. I'd spent some time working in Parliament House for the Minister of Defence at the time. I'd also spent some time working in a McKinsey-style reform program across defence. And it was at some point in time where I actually got approached by Mike Burgess, who is now the Director General of ASD, but in one of his former roles. And he reached out and was keen for me to join DSD, it was at the time. I wasn't quite sure why that was. And the way he put it to me at the time was, he said, look, when we respond to government agency breaches, it's not a lack of technical knowledge that has been the issue. In fact, the 
people working in security in those organisations knew what those issues were. It was a lack of buy-in or a lack of support or an inability to influence decision-making within their organisations. So uh, DSD did and still does uh, have fantastic technical expertise, but what it was missing was... I guess, an influence component about how do we actually influence and drive change. And that was the missing piece of the puzzle. So I joined DSD, it was back then. I spent a few years there. And then I ended up doing a secondment in the Canadian partner agency. And it was at that point that I got picked up by SANS and I ended up as their regional manager in APAC and was based in Seoul for a couple of years, but I really actually miss doing this work. So I moved back to Australia about four or five years ago and took up an influence role at Telstra. So why are you interested in the human factor when it comes to cybersecurity? So I think there's a tendency within cybersecurity to automatically think about the tools and the technology, and it is the exciting aspect of cybersecurity, but it's also there is a strong human element to it. And if we look at the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, puts out regular reporting following the mandatory data breach notification scheme, that validates what we probably already knew in that there's a strong human component to cybersecurity. They recently released their annual report, which said I think it was about 35% of the reported breaches were from human error. But then even from the remaining percentage, I think there was about five related to system fault and 60% for malicious or criminal attack. And even of the malicious and criminal, criminal attack, a significant component, in fact, the highest category relates to still a human element, whether it's uh, social engineering or phishing emails. So ultimately, there's a, there's a really heavy human side to cybersecurity that sometimes gets overlooked. I've always found the human side uh, compelling in all my careers before cybersecurity. I did start a degree in psychology before I moved to political science. I obviously have 10 years in sales. So the human side about how people think has always fascinated me uh, and being able to apply that in an industry as exciting and interesting as cybersecurity is what draws me to it. And tell us a bit more about your role at Telstra. So I run the cyber influence team. That does sound a little Orwellian, I guess. It's probably worth explaining I think, why we're called the cyber influence team, not necessarily the cyber awareness team. I think that awareness, sometimes it's actually about thinking what I want to make you aware of, but it's losing sight of the end goal, which is influence. So we might do that through raising awareness, but influence requires a strong understanding of the person you're engaging with. So what is the behavior that you're trying to change and what is the motivator for change? It might be through awareness that I affect that outcome, but it can actually be multiple ways. So there was a study from a Harvard social psychologist in the 50s called Herbert Kelman, I think his name was, but he talked about three drivers for change in social influence. And the three that he talked about, and this is outside of cybersecurity, was first through compliance. So we can force people or we can influence change through compliance. And typically in cybersecurity, that's where we start and finish. We just put out policies and we expect people to follow those policies. And if they don't, then there's some punitive repercussions. But the two other factors that he talked about that I find much more interesting, and that's what we focus our efforts towards, the first being identification. So that is 
you'll be more inclined to be influenced by those that you identify with. So that's actually more about me. It's about brand and reputation. So how do we change the brand and reputation of the cybersecurity team to be seen as a trusted advisor to the business rather than just someone who projects requirements or the do's and don'ts? So how do we actually encourage the business to see us as a partner? And then lastly, he spoke about uh, internalization, where people will uh, change their behaviors if they've taken on your beliefs or values as their own, and they're now doing it because they believe it's the right thing to do for them, not because you've told them to. So when we move from compliance, yes, you might change behavior, but it doesn't really change or win over hearts and minds. The internalization aspect is how do we actually win over hearts and minds? And that's where it becomes sustainable behavior change. So my team, it's a long-winded way of me saying that I look after the, really the human component, but not just awareness. If if there's a strong human element to something that we're doing in the security team, my team's often called in to partner with the technical team to help them achieve that outcome. And you have a really interesting set of talents in your team, Blair. Could you tell us why that is? Yeah, we do. I mean, uh, I mentioned myself, I, I came through a sales background. I've got two in the team who have backgrounds in journalism. I've got uh, someone with a background as a graphic designer and UX background, uh, communications, of course. Uh, but it is a very mixed bag and it works uh, really well, that diversity of thought within the team and also the diversity of thought embedded within the security team more broadly and all the other technical expertise that we have in the group. It's important because there's a concept called the curse of knowledge and the curse of knowledge is it's that you can't unprocess something that's already learned. So if I'm an expert in something, it's very difficult for me to speak to a lay person because I assume you already know or there's a level of understanding that you may already have. An example of that might be if we're playing charades. It can get really frustrating as the person up there because you think this is so easy, uh, why can't you get it? But it's only easy because I already know the answer. So sometimes you need people like myself with an arts degree who are unencumbered by knowledge who can kind of relay uh, really dense information to an audience that may not have that level of understanding. I think you've just perfectly articulated why we need that mix of technical and other skills in cybersecurity. Yeah, I think you've proved why it's so important to have both. Yeah, and I think it's the technical skills are incredibly important. They're critical to our industry. But I think it's it really comes down to diversity of thought and having that core technical base, but being able to have people in the team who have a different background, different skill set, or being able to partner with other areas of your business or organisation who can help you achieve the outcome. I think gone are the days where the security team looks after security and that's what they do and um, it's a problem just for the security or IT teams. So, Blair, we've just heard about your fantastic team. If you were landing... And an organisation that maybe didn't have the rich resources that you have today in your team and maybe you are their first uh, awareness and influence professional, what would be the, the three things you might do first or what guidance would you give to somebody who just landed in that position themselves? Yeah, so I would, as an organisation, I'd look outside the security team. Not to say that you might not have individuals within the security team that would do a great job, but 
you almost need a translator as the liaison between the technical team and the rest of the business who can turn that into something that the business will understand, but also it's relevant and achievable for the business. So first I'd look at who in your organization might be a good fit for that. And they may or they may not come from the security team. It also doesn't require a lot of investment. Sometimes I refer to the team as where the security storytellers, how do we turn it into stories? Telling stories doesn't cost money. It's about how do you actually use all the information that's available to you from the security team to then drive an outcome? What are the behaviors that are challenging you within your organization or that are generating a lot of risk? And how do you actually curb or address those behaviors? And what about if you were a smaller business and, you know, there's not ever going to be the funding to have a influence and awareness professional full-time? Mm-hmm. What would your guidance be to the CEO of that small business with five employees? So that's difficult. If you have an organisation with five employees, you probably also don't have someone dedicated looking after your security at all. But I think ultimately we talked about the human component of cybersecurity. So no business, no matter how big or small, is immune. So you still need to understand there is a risk. And you might not have someone dedicated to managing your cybersecurity, but employees or individuals will be targeted. So even getting the basics and whether that's about, you know, phishing and avoiding installing dodgy apps and things like that, I think there's a baseline level of knowledge that we need to ensure people can can meet. But there's a lot of free resources available out there too. Um, Stay Smart Online, run a campaign every year. There's a lot of free materials. Use those materials and make sure that your staff take them on board. So tell us more about how you've used storytelling at Telstra. So I mentioned earlier the three levers, I guess, to drive change and the internalisation components. How do we actually get people to change behaviours because they've changed their beliefs? Uh, That requires us to change. And when I say us, I mean us as a security industry. How do we communicate things that are relevant, they're understandable, they're relatable, and importantly, they're achievable. Uh, Sometimes we provide advice that isn't practical or it's going to limit the business being able to do what it needs to do. So focus on the things that you need to change and understand what it is that's limiting or restricting your ability to change. But what we've found that's really worked is storytelling so quite often we say okay there's a we, we understand there's a strong a component to cybersecurity, but then the way that we approach that is we sit our staff down every 12 months and we give them a list of here are the do's and don'ts and then some multiple choice questions that they can brute force their way through and that's how we address the people component but we all know that that's not how people remember and retain and share information i'll forget that list as soon as you told it to me But what I won't forget is a really good story. So how do we take all the rich information that we have, the anecdotes, the case studies, and we can turn those into stories that people remember? I don't need to tell you a long list and get you to remember everything. What I'd much rather do is get you thinking about security all the time. And if you have a question, then you can proactively reach out to me and we can have a sensible conversation rather than, oh, what was the list of 10 things that Blair told me that I can't do? So what we've done in the past 
is we've created some stories that are actually much more like, well, some videos that are much more like Netflix-style miniseries episodes as opposed to your typical talking head training video. So we partnered with a film and TV agency a while ago. And we've got some fantastic knowledge within the team about cybersecurity. So I didn't need an organization or a security organization to give me training material. I needed a way to more effectively or, um, I guess, provide that information to our staff in a much more engaging way. So that's why we reached out to a creative agency. So we developed some mini series videos, about five. We ran them on a Uh, a number of different topics. We ran them over a campaign. What we found at the end was that they tended to resonate much more with staff. We started to drive conversation, which is what we wanted. We got a huge increase in proactive engagement with the security team. People like, well, actually, I'm working on a project. Um, What do you think about this? It was, again, it came back to that identification element about brand and reputation. It changed the way that the security team was perceived. But one of the uh, more pleasing stats at the end was about we wanted to know how people even found out about the videos. They weren't mandatory compliance training. And we found about 15% of the people that viewed them found out about them through word of mouth. So you had employees sharing information within their teams and networks. That expands our reach. We're not getting that level of engagement with mandatory compliance training. But all of a sudden, we're telling interesting stories that Security can be naturally interesting, but how do we tell those stories to get people thinking about it and wanting to know more? I'm curious as to whether you can share um, any of the interesting questions that came back after the employees started engaging with you. Was there anything you that surprised you or anything that you learned about how people felt towards security in the past? Uh, yeah, I think there's a perception that we were the department of no or the fun police or my boss will sometimes use the phrase, the handbrake to happiness. So it definitely changed that perception. We did get people reaching out to ask, what do you think about this? Or I'm doing a project. Um, I'm about to partner with an organization. What are the things I need to be thinking about? What I also like through the release of the videos, that I think the, the feedback that I got that I loved the most was from a lady who worked in IT. And as an IT professional, she said, look, I thought I knew everything there was to know about security, but actually this really made me realise a few things, particularly about that human aspect. But she liked the videos so much that she went home and she showed her two kids. I think one was 10 or 12 and the other one was 14 or 15. So fairly tough audience, um, but they both got something out of it too. So it was about, you know, we can share information that doesn't have to be dry. Uh, How can we actually communicate with people in a much more human way being storytelling? And they want to then share that with the people that they care about. So if it makes, if there's a human or a personal connection to the information and it automatically makes you think, I should share that with people I care about, then I've done my job. Fantastic work. Congratulations to you and the team for that. It's an amazing achievement that people went on to share that with their own families at home as well. Now, I would like to find out a bit more about Blair and where you find inspiration. And it it doesn't have to be cybersecurity related, but who influences you and who inspires you? Um, So I don't know if I could say who, but I mentioned before I've got a political science degree, I'm still at heart a politics junkie. And so I do spend a lot of my time trawling through Twitter, getting a little bit heated uh, about some things. I think it still comes back to, though, I get inspired by people that have 
a vision um, and people that have a willingness and an ability to communicate and inspire. That's why I'm naturally drawn to politics. But I think cybersecurity also, I think the best teams I've worked in have been teams that have had a leader with a vision, a willingness to communicate it and champion it, um, and building that shared vision across the team and letting everyone who has all those different skill sets bring whatever they can to the team has always been the teams that I've really enjoyed uh, working in the most, but it's also been the teams that we've achieved the most. And Blair, how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more about the videos and how you did it or they want to follow you on Twitter? Either. I think if you wanted to add my Twitter handle in the um, in the episode notes. Yeah, we'll do that. Not a problem. Yeah. Um, I'm always open for people to reaching out, want to know more. They can email my work address. I'm happy if you wanted to share that. But I think, you know, there's how we win is about sharing information. And I think there's a, a, a large and a growing community within what we do now. When I started, cybersecurity particularly was seen as something that national security agencies need to worry about. I think that then grew to government become to understand that and accept that this was something they needed to understand and address. And I think now that's grown further still that there's a, a broad understanding that it is a problem for, for all of us. But I think even our own community, the awareness or the influence community has grown and you look at organisations like the Security Influence and Trust Group and all of a sudden now there's hundreds of people that are doing our roles and I think what we can do is if we can share that information about what's working, what's not working and if we can learn from each other, I think that's how we win. That's a great call out, Blair. And just one last thing, um, there, is there anything you want to shout out or share? I, I'm going to talk about your wonderful article, How to Patch a Human, and goes into a lot more detail than we had time for today around those three elements that we talked about earlier. How can people find that article? Uh, so it is pinned to my Twitter profile, so you can read it there. It's an article on Medium, um, but if you go to my Twitter profile, it's pinned up there. But, uh, yeah, the How to Patch a Human article. So, Blair, what do you think the future holds for cybersecurity? Yeah, I think um, it's only going to become more important. And I think if you step back and think about 10, 15, 20 years ago, when you bought a computer or you bought a laptop, you would need to phone a friend to help set it up or I've got an internet connection at home, how do I connect everything? Everything now is much more plug and play. You can spin up a cloud service with a credit card number and an email address. Any executive can do that on their own. They don't need to rely on a central IT or a department to do that. And as we also encourage more remote working and work from home, those perimeters have almost dissolved. So I think that what it does mean is it makes it more critical when you're also thinking of more data, more users, more devices, but also uh, more threats and more sophistication that I think it's only going to become more important, but I'm quite hopeful. I mentioned before about the growth in awareness and profile around security. And with groups like Security Influence and Trust and those other communities, there's a diverse spread of skills now entering the security community that are only bringing more value and more different fresh perspectives. Fantastic. Well, Thank you so much for being our very first guest. We really appreciate it and absolutely loved hearing from you today and keep, keep up the fantastic work. Thank you. So Beverly, 
How did you find the interview, our first oh, one? So exciting to get that first one and so interesting. His history is just showing people that feel reluctant to move into cyber what's possible and what they can bring to it. You know, it did take some key people though and I did want to shout out Mike Burgess sponsors a lot of people and he's had time for me. He's been great. And to hear how when you get that one supporter just makes a difference to launching your career. I yeah. thought that was just brilliant. It's um, helping take somebody under your wing and take them on the journey is so valuable. And, you know, Blair is a perfect example of what can be achieved when people do that for others. I thought the other thing that was really interesting was the three drivers for change that we kind of haven't put context, that sort of context around it. We knew that we had to move away from a compliance-led awareness style, but I think, you know, that context for me was really important to understand. I think the other thing was just that if you don't win the hearts and minds and bring that diversity of thought, um, you just don't get any traction. You know, people have to feel that they know it. It's not the 10 steps for success. So what they're doing with the Netflix-style stories is really great for people because they get engaged. You know, everybody knows that educational awareness and micro learning is kind of the new, the new buzzwords. And it was great to hear how he's using that and really getting, getting traction, getting people on board. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes. And for more information, visit cybersecuritycafe.com.au and find us on Twitter at CyberACC Cafe.